Hello, and welcome to Criterion by the Numbers, our ongoing appreciation of the films in the Criterion Collection. I'm Cole Rolain. And I'm Bobby Munoz. Join us as we examine their DVD library and discuss what sets this series of important classic and contemporary films apart in both content and presentation. Okay, welcome to episode zero. We thought with this introductory episode that we would give you guys an idea of just why the Criterion Collection is important to us and important in general. The Criterion Collection started out as a Laserdisc imprint initially, and at the time they went out of their way to distinguish themselves by acquiring a library of some of the better movies ever made. And because licensing and issues of that sort were a completely different beast back in those days, they were actually able to acquire a lot more uh, significant major mainstream Hollywood movies uh, than they can now. Some of the uh, earlier Criterion titles that I remember from the Laserdisc era were King Kong, Seven was a Criterion title, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But along with that, they also went out of their way to try to endorse and and, and try to uh, support uh, a lot of foreign films that didn't really get adequate presentation when they were released on VHS. So consequently, they were some of the first to do really, really great transfers of movies uh, like Seven Samurai and uh, a lot of the Truffaut films, a lot of the Godard films. Criterion Laserdiscs were a lot of times the first place that a lot of people were able to see these movies at home in their original letterbox format, which was also, you know, it was a really big deal back then. Because aside from a few Woody Allen movies, like I remember, I think Manhattan was available on VHS and Letterbox. I think Color Purple uh, was available in Letterbox, but for the most part, it was an anomaly. And it was, you know, people still believed back then that you were cutting off part of the movie on the top and the bottom. Uh, and Criterion was just kind of bucking that trend in home video and actually presenting these films in as close to their original and proper state as possible. I remember the way I really discovered the collection was probably similar to the way a lot of geeks, film and otherwise, found their way to it. I'm sure it started with Monty Python and the various offshoots there, Brazil, Time Bandits, that sort of thing. And being as into music as I was, especially punk rock at that age, Sid and Nancy was a big draw for me. But what really sunk its hook was when I went to a Barnes & Noble, discovered a buy to get one free sale, and bought M, Wages of Fear, and The Testament of Dr. Mabusa. And I holed up in a cold, dark basement in Massachusetts and watched (laughs) those three movies over and over again over a Christmas holiday with all the extra features, of course. And after that, I made it a point to seek out practically everything that they put out. It really was what started the collector bug in me as far as the Criterion Collection goes. Talking about supplements and extra features, that was the other thing. And I you know, I hate to keep going back to the idea of dating myself, but this does date back to the Laserdisc era. The cool thing about Laserdiscs at the time was that you could have separate audio channels for, for a film so that you could run it with the original track, but you could also have the commentary track, which now is such, you know, every movie that comes out has a commentary track of some sort. Back then, it was kind of a rare treat to actually get to hear these filmmakers talk about the process as you're watching the film and specifically reference scenes and have them explain to you what was going on in the background or what was happening on the set that day, who was having an argument with who, and then suddenly they had to go in and 
hit action and all of these things going on. And these are stories that not only were they sharing with you, but they were sharing with you as you were watching the movie, which again, is something we take for granted now. But at the time, Criterion kind of pioneered that kind of thing. The commentary track and then the supplements, they always included uh, a trailer for whatever you know movie or a featurette. And these things are just run of the mill now, but at the time it was something you looked forward to. I miss the color bars. The color, yeah. <laughs> there was a store in San Antonio. It might still be there. I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, it was called Bjorn's, and it was a television, like a high-end television outlet place. Uh, they sold some of the first home widescreen TVs, really high-end stereo equipment, surround sound systems, thousands of dollars worth of stuff for what you would pay 150 bucks for now. But they had a room in Bjorn's that was nothing but laser discs. Uh, and I think they might have rented Laserdisc, but primarily sold. And once, you know, every two or three months, we would take a road trip. You know, we would hoard, you know, our cash because they were really expensive back then. It was not, you know, you couldn't go down to the Walmart and buy, you know, go through the $5 bin. They were like 30 40 50 bucks at the time. I know the uh, Close Encounters Criterion Disc was like 125 150 something like that. And we'd drive down there with the express purpose of buying a movie you know well, three or four of us would go down there and we'd all buy one and we would spend hour hour and a half two and a half hours just digging through like we were digging through record crates but we were digging through laser discs and just the first section we always went to was the criterion section because even if there was 50 movies and we'd heard of maybe two of them we knew that guaranteed uh, the other 48 were also going to be exceptional so at that point, you're just you're going by you know reputation. Well, it's like never seen this Truffaut movie, but I know Truffaut is a fantastic director. So and then we would you know we would all come back, head over there in the mid afternoon, drive back to Austin about seven eight, and uh, and then hole up at somebody's house, and then we would just turn the movies on and just watch them, uh, and they were always fantastic, and it was always you know it was the treat that we had for ourselves, and we always looked forward to it. Well, when Criterion started with the Laserdiscs in 1984, this was what my typical video experience was. We had just gotten a large grocery store in my small hometown in southwest Oklahoma where you could rent the VCR Mm -hmm. and the movies in the huge clamshell cases. Of course, you had to put down a deposit, all of those things. And so Laserdiscs were completely foreign to me at the time. We brought home the VCR in its huge plastic flight case with accessible jacks in the back that you would plug into your TV. And that was exotic for me at the time. And at the time, I was 14, 15, I guess, when all that really started. And I was just doing my best to track down a little offbeat Hollywood films, much less something as exotic as what the Criterion Collection was routinely putting out. Yeah. In junior high, I had no idea that these things were going on out there. And when I finally was able to get access to these things and discovered things like commentary tracks, my world was changed forever. The insight into the process, as well as just appreciating the film on its own merit, is an experience, like you say, that the Criterion Collection pioneered that practically no one else was doing at the time. And it sort of informs a lot of the style of What this podcast is going to be, I hope we shoot for a balance of being informative as well as entertaining. We're approaching this pretty much exclusively as fans. It's not a scholarly endeavor at all. It's going to have analysis and examination, but we don't pretend to be historians by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, there's nothing that we would have to say about Seven Samurai that Stephen Prince hasn't said. Exactly. 
far more informatively and eloquently than we ever could. So there's no point in taking that track. But the approach I really like to keep in mind, I do this the same way I like to do my job. I think back to those people when I was a kid in the record stores, in the bookstores, in the video stores that put these things into my hands that I might not have otherwise found without them. They knew I was looking for something to push me a little bit, to go above and beyond the average product. And so they pointed me in this direction, and I was able to follow this path and continue to follow this path, trying to go further and further out to find things that educate and entertain me. I'd like this to be that for other people. I know that most of the people that find this initially are going to be film buffs anyway and are probably awfully familiar with most of the Criterion Collection and what it is they do. But I also really want this to be for the people that don't know a great deal about it and because of our enthusiasm for it, feel inclined to go track these things down and experience them for themselves. I was thinking of specific Criterion releases that when I saw them seemed revelatory uh, in some way, shape, or form. Spinal Tap. The original Laserdisc released a Spinal Tap, and I think a lot of the uh, extras carried over to the DVD. But all of the uh, the bonus footage, there's more than an hour over of an hour. bonus footage uh, from what's one of the funniest movies ever made. And then suddenly you have another hour of more of the funniest movie ever made. You could sit and just watch the bonus footage over and over and over again, even if you get tired of the movie. And that was one of those instances where I just thought, these guys know what the hell they're doing. You know, these guys care about giving the consumer, whether it's as a fan or as, you know, an academic, they care about giving you, you know, what you're paying for. And it just seems like the people who curate and and who acquire these movies do so because they love the movies just as much as the people that are watching them at home. It's not a bunch of guys, uh, suits as it were, sitting back trying to figure out the economics of, well, what movies can we actually put out that are going to give us the best return? doesn't seem like that factors in not that they're not they're in it to make a living sure but that's not necessarily the driving force no it's definitely a niche market but you're right you can see it in everything from the films that they acquire to the efforts in remastering to the supplemental material all the way down to the packaging itself yeah the cover art is some of the most beautiful alternate movie posters to a lot of these films that you've ever seen I handle DVDs at work all day, every day, and I cannot tell you how disappointing it is to see one after another after another where apparently the marketing department thinks the only way to sell this film is with a picture of the two principals and the title as big as it can be. There's no... (laughs) It's all profiles and silhouettes. Indeed it is. And there's no attempt at art on 90%, I would say, of these covers. But virtually everything the Criterion Collection does stands on its own. You could appreciate just the packaging by itself, and it almost makes it worth the extra price to pay for these films, not to mention the material that's actually on the discs. They could just make a nice little sideline offering prints of all of their covers as posters, because so many of them are just fantastic. Uh, Days of Heaven one is amazing. Uh, The Wings of Desire is fantastic. And earlier, I had mentioned earlier about how um, the licensing issues back in the days of Laserdiscs, they offered a lot more major studio films. And after the new technology of DVD comes along, a lot of those licensing deals have to be rewritten. And so consequently, a lot of the big studios uh, are holding on to a lot of their property and not leasing them to companies like Criterion. So as a result, you have a situation now where Criterion is kind of, you know, I guess they rolled with the times and they're bringing together a lot more foreign films, a lot more obscure 
obscure early era cinema films, uh, a lot more uh, niche cult films that, for whatever reason, didn't necessarily get the grand treatment that they deserved. There's just an example. You have a movie like Carnival of Souls. At this point, it's a public domain movie. You can go and find it for a dollar at the counter on a, at a 7-Eleven next to Night of the Living Dead and who knows what else. But there's a Criterion edition. They've gone and cleaned up the picture. They've added a whole lot of supplements. Gone out of their way to say, here's a movie that for all intents and purposes, time and Hollywood forgot. And they've rescued it, so to speak, and given it the attention that it deserves, which I guess begs the question, why don't they have Night of the Living Dead as a Criterion title, which is definitely uh, something that needs to be addressed at some point by them. Just today I was reading a really great interview, in fact, with Peter Becker, who's the president of Criterion, about how they go about licensing their films, just exactly what is involved with the restoration, how the films get chosen, what the roadblocks are, how uh, arduous a process, or in fact, um, easy a process it can be sometimes. And I'll link that article to our blog page for uh, anybody that would like to take a look at that. It's full of great information and much clearer answers than I could give for all the questions like that. They also feature a lot of foreign film directors that I had never heard of. For example, Solaris. Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. You know, I wasn't familiar with his work until I saw Solaris as a uh, Criterion title. And uh, since then, I've come to realize he's, uh, you know, one of the greatest directors that's ever existed. Korostami, same thing. Aki Korosmaki. One thing I'm really excited about that I haven't picked up yet, and this is sort of a sideline to the Criterion collection... But they also do much less expensive collections of films like that that have slipped through the cracks of directors that at one point were fairly prominent in their home countries. The Sasha Gitry collection that they just released, he was essentially France's Noel Coward. And I'm really excited to see those, but I haven't picked that up yet. Mm. They, they do a lot of great work in making sure that deserving films get the proper attention. And... They give the same exacting attention to detail to milestone films, those films that everyone should see at some point. Seven Samurai, The Seventh Seal, Breathless. I could go on and on and on. Blows. There are so many. That's essentially what the collection was built on, these milestone pieces of international cinema. And every single one of them in their presentation, their packaging, the prints of the films are just spectacular. That's what's so exciting about these movies. So, thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll be joining us as we start this little journey. Uh, in case you haven't figured it out, we are going to be doing these reviews, these podcasts, in order of spine number. And so, saying that, our first official full-length podcast is going to be covering Criterion Number 1, Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir. And hopefully that should be up in uh, a week or two. With any luck. With any luck. So, if you'd like to reach us, you can do so at criterionbythenumbers at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. Any comments, criticisms, just let us know you're out there. Until next time, I'm Bobby Munoz. I'm Cole Lane. Thanks for listening.